verse 14 to 22. And this is on page 993 in the blue Bibles in front of you. All right, Revelation chapter three, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear, so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes, so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh, good morning. Uh, welcome to church. My name is Pete. I'm the lead pastor. And I don't know, just a show of hands, who is here a teacher, primary or secondary, or training to be a teacher? Hands up. How many a few of you? Yeah, okay. I think you have the hardest job in the world. You really do. That's, I mean, okay, some of you think they just came from a two-month vacation. How can they have the hardest? They get paid to have as much holidays as the kids. No, no, you have the hardest job in the world. And I would know because my wife, Karen, used to be a primary school teacher. Um, and I think one of the hardest things teachers have to do is to write reports. Yeah? Those of you who are teachers, isn't that a really hard job? I mean, it's not just because you have to write so many and they can be so tedious and repetitive. What makes it really hard, let's admit, is that you really can't write what you really want to write. Can you? Because some students really deserve bad comments on their report cards, don't they? But you, you can't write something like this. Your son is depriving a village somewhere of an idiot. How many of you teachers are like, yes, I can think of those idiots in my class. I would like to write that. But no, you would get fired. So you can't write these things directly anymore. So teachers, when you're writing reports, you have to now get creative, don't you? You have to say what you want to say in an indirect way. So I've got an activity for you. I'll show you some report cards, and you can chat with the person next to you and try and think about what the teacher is trying to say. Let's have a look at the first one. AB has an active imagination and enjoys having a lot of creative outlet. Chat amongst yourselves. What do you think the teacher is actually saying? All right, that's enough time. Give me some answers. What do you think? What's, 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 what's the teacher actually saying about the student? Disruptive. Disruptive, yeah? Can't concentrate to save his or her life. Yeah, that, that's what they're really saying, right? Okay, how about this one? Chat about this one. CD contributes well in discussion and is learning to share their enthusiasm with quieter members of the class. 
That's an easy one. What's the teacher really saying? CD can't shut up. Apparently that's Chrissy. Um, okay, how about this one? EF has great potential and is growing in motivation and learning. When you say that about a student like a real estate property, you know what that really means, right? <laughs> this house has great potential. <laughs> yeah, what, what's this? This student is so lazy. Okay. It's a bit of fun, but coming back. Revelation chapters 2 and 3, which, by the way, we're going to be uh, going through the whole book of Revelation later in the year. So if you're keen on the book of Revelation, being always fascinated what it's about, uh, wait till the second half of the year, we'll be going through the whole book. But these two chapters, you're going to find what really is Jesus' report card for his churches. He writes seven letters to seven churches. Now, these seven churches actually did exist in antiquity, in the first century, all around Asia Minor, which is the modern-day Turkey. But really, it's, they're symbolic as well, because the number seven in the Bible is very symbolic. It means completeness. So these churches are representative of all churches back then, but also all churches throughout history, including churches now. That's what they mean. Now, of these seven churches, we don't have time to read them all, but let's skip straight to the uh, exam marks. Two of them get an A, right? Nothing is bad about them at all. Nothing bad said about them. Three of them will get a B, that is, there's a mix of good and bad reports, and two of them will get a C or an F, right? Nothing good is said about them, only bad stuff. Now, the one that we just read, Laodicea, from chapter 3, well, it doesn't take a genius to guess, it's one of those C slash F churches. Nothing really good is said about them. Now, I could have picked any of the other ones, but today on Vision Sunday, I thought I'd go for the extreme one. Because I would like us to use Jesus' words to this church as a sort of mirror to hold up how we as a church, as Southwest Evangelical Church or SWEC, is doing. Are there places that we need to improve? What can we learn as we take a look at them? All right, let's pray and then we'll uh, get into it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the Lord of this church, you are the great shepherd. You are the beginning, the end, the great Amen. Father, we come and we want to, at the beginning of this year, recognize that we're not in control, you are, and this is your church. And we want to humbly submit ourselves that whatever Jesus wants to say to us today by his Spirit, we pray that we would listen, we pray that we would change, we pray that this year we might experience renewal. In Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, so I've got our three points. We're going to first look at the report card that Jesus wrote for the Laodiceans. Then we're going to turn it, uh, the attention on us as a church, a swag. Now, before we do, though, um, you need to note that there are strong words, okay, of rebuke for this church. And you might read this chapter and think, wow, Jesus must really hate these people. He's really ashamed of them. But actually, you'll see it there in verse, look at verse 19 again. Keep in mind why Jesus says what he said. Look at verse 19. Keep your Bibles open in Revelation 3. We'll actually park in there, so just keep it open. Verse 19, he says, Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Right? Those whom I love. Now, there may be words of rebuke he will say to us at Swek. 
But he says it because he loves us. Let's keep reading. So be earnest and repent. Verse 20. The goal is, verse 20, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. What's the goal? Jesus wants intimacy with his church, with his people. And that's the goal. He loves us. That's why he writes to rebuke us. So let's remember the last three weeks we looked at um, our head, heart, and hand series. And we keep mentioning how this thing called church, or we've looked at the topic of community, right? Because the church is not the building. The church is not the institution. The church is the community, the people. We looked at how precious the church is to Jesus, right? The church is precious. His people are precious. He loves them so much. And you know how much he loves us because of what he paid to get us. And that is he paid with his life. He died to make us his. We started as rebels, not wanting anything to do with him. Stuck in sin and death and darkness, Jesus dies the death we deserve, rescues us, makes us his. There's a regime change. There's a citizenship transfer, and it cost his life. Now, if you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, or you don't know where you're exactly at yet, um, or if you're just a visitor, um, today's a bit of housekeeping, right? So some of this stuff won't really be relevant to you. You really not what, know what's going on. But let me just say at the outset, this is relevant to you. Even if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this is relevant to you. Jesus loves you. Jesus died so that you can be forgiven and become one of His. And if you're not clear about where you stand with Him, let me encourage you to ask, find out today, and especially to come back. Because the next three weeks after this, starting next week, are really going to be tailored for you and all of our friends who may not know Jesus personally yet. So come back and find out more. But my point is that He's going to say these things, these rebuking words, because, he's, because He loves them, because He loves us. Because we are precious to Jesus. And so like a good parent, right? And our parents get it. I'm a parent of four kids. Probably get it right 50% of the time. Jesus is the perfect parent, okay? When he rebukes and disciplines, it's always for our good. He wants us to repent so that we might get closer to him and have greater joy and deeper fellowship. And we want to be like that, don't we, as a church? If you're thinking, is this a church I want to belong to? This is the church that we want to be. We want to welcome the Lord Jesus. We want Him to come and eat with us, to have deep intimacy with us. So in order to do that, we've got to take heed of what He says, out of love. All right, let's keep going then. So point number one, what does He say about this church? Verse 14, let's have a look at it again. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write... These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Do you know people who like to drink warm water, even on a really hot day? That's a sort of Asian thing, is it? I, I, can't, I don't get that. You might think... That's okay. Your parents may do that. And if that's the case, then you think warm water is good. Apparently cold water is not good for your, I don't know, some Chinese yin-yang thing. Who knows? But um, warm water is better for you, supposedly. Well, not in this case, okay? Not in this case. It's very clear. Being warm, lukewarm water here is not a good thing. Jesus wants to spit him out of his mouth. Now, I used to think that what Jesus meant is that 
the, right, the reason why lukewarm is bad is because hot is good, but cold is bad, and he'd rather them just be all in or all out, right? Hot is good, cold is bad, don't be lukewarm, don't stand in the middle, be all in or all out. But actually, that's not quite the case, because in verse 15, he says, I wish you were hot or cold. Now, cold here is actually a good thing as well. Hot is good, cold is good, lukewarm is bad. Uh, right? Do you kind of get what I mean? That's not what he means, that lukewarm is somehow in the middle of the good and the bad, and he wishes there were one or the other. No, no, no. They are both good. Lukewarm is the bad one. Now, to understand why that is the case, you have to understand a little bit of ancient history. Yeah, we know a lot of things about this ancient city of Laodicea, that a church really existed there. Modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor was the region it was called back then. We know that it was a thriving and wealthy city. But we also know from archaeology, and they've done this by looking at the um, water supply of Laodicea, that, and also ancient sources, that Laodicea was known, notoriously known, for bad water. For bad water. I don't know if you've ever been to China. A few years ago, I went traveling um, with uh, the then head of World Vision Australia, uh, Tim Costello. I'm not just name-dropping, okay? But I got to travel with Tim Costello. <laughs> so cool. Anyway, and um, Tim Costello, great guy, and I, was, I had a great time with him. We went and saw World Vision projects, all that kind of stuff. He didn't know, he hadn't been to China before, he didn't know that you can't drink water from the tap. And so on day one, he not only brushed his teeth with the tap water, he drank, so you can imagine for the next few days, he wasn't so well. All right? Laodicea had a bad water supply. Compared, though, with two cities near Laodicea, up the north of Laodicea was a city called Hierapolis, and it was like, I don't know if you've been to Rotorua in the you know, North Island of New Zealand. It's, it's famous for its hot springs, right? People loved it for its hot springs. That was Heropolis in the north. To the west was another city called Colossae. Colossae was famous for its, it's Mount Franklin, okay? It's, Colossae was famous for its cold, refreshing drinking water. Laodicea had neither. So for its water supply, it didn't have its own water supply, it needed to have it shipped or transported via the Roman aqueducts from places like Colossae and Heropolis. But here's the thing, by the time it reaches Laodicea, it was neither hot nor cold nor clean. All right? It was lukewarm in temperature, but it was also dirty and gross. And Jesus is saying to the city, to the church there, you're like that water that no one wants to drink, that if you drank it, it's going to make you sick. So he's saying to his people, look, I find you seriously lacking, right? They're not the kind of church that he wants them to be. Their deeds, well, you're neither hot nor cold. Remember, both hot and cold are good. You're neither usefully hot where you can soak in the tub with it or cold and refreshing and clean to drink. You're neither. You are pukey, warm and undrinkable and I want to spit you out. Now, they're pretty strong words. But if it was just about their deeds... That would be enough, but he goes on to say what really makes them worse, and I think what really makes this lukewarm church bad is not so much what they did or what they are, but the fact that they thought everything was okay when everything was not okay, okay? They were especially disgusting to Jesus because they had a problem and they thought, we're doing fine. Look at verse 17. This is what Jesus really is targeting. You say, I am rich. 
I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. This was a wealthy city, by the way. But you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich, white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Rather than being a church that is humble enough to see we're not all that we should be, we need to change, we need to repent, we've fallen short. They, and what made them particularly lukewarm and pukey, was they were self-sufficient. They were self-reliant. They didn't think they need to change. They don't think they really need Jesus. And this is exactly why I wanted to pick this church. Not because this is our problem, Sweck's problem in particular, but because this is the problem of all of the churches in all of Australia in particular and in the West. Right? I mean, churches in the West, you talk to anyone in, in churches in, in places like Iran where it's illegal, North Korea in China even, and they will say, you guys in the West have so much, but you're also so self-sufficient. See, we, we, we don't compare ourselves enough with the church of the Bible. We don't look at the book of Acts and think, all right, that's what the church should look like. We don't even look through history enough and say, hey, at periods of history, churches were so much more alive than us. No, 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 we look around us, we compare ourselves to churches next to us in our suburb, in our city, and we go, okay, we're not as big and you know, mega churchy as Hillsong, but we're not as bad as that church. And we just look sideways, and in the end, we're just self-sufficient, yeah? So, so a church like ours, like we have so much. We have somewhere to meet. Um, we have pastors and leaders and Sunday school teachers and youth leaders. And hey, we have enough money to buy air conditioning recently. That's pretty good. We're doing okay. And so we're so in danger of just settling for that. And we lose that desperation that we need Jesus. And so we become lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. And we think it's okay. So coming to my second point, I wonder what Jesus would say to our church. We started church 10 years ago and we, um, before we came up with a really nice, succinct vision, mission statement, um, we came up with four, at least four core values, things that we valued. Um, so I thought we'd go there because core values are a little bit different to mission statements, vision statements. They're the things that we really want to be the heartbeat of our church. These four things are under point two, worship, word, community, and mission. So I thought I'd use these four, and I asked myself the question, if I had to do a, a, a sort of a, uh, I don't know, a, a, had to paint a picture of a lukewarm church. If I had to take Laodicea into the modern day and say, what would Laodicea look like in terms of these four areas? Worship, word, community, mission. I wonder what it would look like. Okay, so this is not specifically about our church, but I want us to just have a look at these four core values and what a lukewarm church of worship, word, community, and mission might look like. This is hypothetical, but I also want it to be a chance for us to kind of take a look at ourselves later on. But let, let's start with worship. When it comes to worship, it's not that a lukewarm church doesn't have worship. In fact, a lukewarm church may have lots of great worship by at least one standard. It's just that it doesn't go deep enough or far enough. 
So let me give you five features. I'll give you five of each. Five features of a church with lukewarm worship. A church with lukewarm worship is, sees that worship is equated with music. If the music is good, if the band is rocking, and the atmosphere is great, that is good worship. A church with lukewarm worship has rituals or emotional highs replace a hunger to really encounter God. In fact, you may not even know the difference. You come to church, either you're involved in rituals, you have a sense of the transcendent, and you think, I've encountered God because of the rituals, or you come to a church with the great music and the band and the everything, and the emotional high makes you think, I've encountered God. But if I ask you, what does it really mean to encounter God? You'll be saying, well, that is it, right? The ritual, the emotional high. I don't know the difference otherwise. That's a lukewarm church. A lukewarm church with worship is more about what the person does up front than what the congregation does all together. And rehearsal and practice is always more important than prayer. And Sunday worship does not overflow into worship Monday to Saturday. Have a think about that. That, was, that is what a Laodicean worship church would look like. We're going to keep moving and we'll come and think about us in a moment. What about the next one? Our second core value is word, God's word. A lukewarm church will enjoy the sermon and critique the sermon primarily. People will ask each other, how did you find the sermon today? And the answer will be, I enjoyed it. Or, yeah, I thought there were real problems with the introduction of the sermon. It just wasn't funny enough. Too many Star Wars references. But that's mainly it. You enjoy the sermon, you critique the sermon. The teaching and speaking of God's Word is done only by its pastors and leaders. Now, why is that a problem? Colossians 3 tells us, teach and admonish one another. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teaching each other is supposed to be the norm, not just people up front. But a lukewarm church, that's primarily the teaching that happens and the speaking of God's Word. Number three, preachers and teachers of the Bible rely primarily on their abilities rather than prayer. In a lukewarm church, their Bible teachers may be great and well-trained because they've been through Bible college. They know they're Greek, they're Hebrew, and all that kind of stuff. They're really great at taking apart a passage, understanding it. But they're not known for being great prayers. And when you teach and lead a group, you know you rely, your confidence comes from how much you've prepared more than how much you've prayed. Not that they should be in opposition, but you kind of get what I mean. Number four, reading and studying the Bible does not happen daily in everyone's personal lives and homes. And number five, we are good hearers of the Word, but not good doers of the Word. That's from the book of James. So that would be a a Laodicean lukewarm church when it comes to the Word. Let's keep going. Community. A lukewarm church would have lots of cliques formed based on age, background, common interests, but not everyone is going to be included. In a lukewarm church, joining is easy. Welcoming may be great, but leaving is also easy. Big front door, big back door. In a lukewarm church, a minority does the majority of the serving and caring. 20% does 
80% of the work. Church community, number four, doesn't reflect the diversity of the community outside of the church. And number five, sacrificial acts of hospitality and generosity are, they're there, but they're rare. It's not the norm. And sacrificial is the key word, right? Sacrificial means it hurts. And last of all, how about mission or evangelism, sharing the gospel? In a lukewarm church, you might have a lot of evangelistic programs, but without those, if you stripped any of those, if, if it suddenly in a year that there were none of those, then very little personal evangelism would be happening. In a lukewarm church, local and global mission is driven by the enthusiasm of a few, because it's there, but it's the enthusiasm of a few, rather than the efforts of the whole. Number three, gospel words are not accompanied by gospel deeds. So people are able to share two ways to live, three circles, but their lives have far less impact on the people around them that might be seeking. Number four, a church supports missionaries, finances, all that kind of stuff, but does not treat them as an extension of its own mission. And number five, a church wants to hold on to its best people and resources rather than release them for kingdom growth. Okay, there we go. Worship, word, community, mission. Again, I didn't write these primarily as about us. In fact, you can look through this list and and what you'll find is some of the best and biggest, perhaps mega churches may be actually really, really lukewarm, yeah? I mean, you just looked at the list about worship. If worship, good worship is equated with good music and good band and emotional highs and what the person does up front, then there's lots of churches that fall into that category. But here's the thing. Our job today isn't to look sideways, and that is always the Laodicean problem. We think we're okay when we look sideways. Oh, we're, you know, we may not be as big as that, as that church, but at least we don't have the fairy lights and the smoke machines to just, you know, I don't know. All right? No, no, no. Let's, let's, let's have a look at this in relation to us. Because I think there's two wrong reactions we can take. One is that we get defensive. You know, someone points out a fault of yours, our immediate reaction, you get defensive. That's not us. Compared with others, we're not that bad. Really, you don't understand our church, blah, 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 blah. You know, okay? Get defensive. The other false reaction, wrong reaction we can have is that we get completely down about ourselves. Oh, we're terrible. We suck. Like, we're the worst church ever. Right? Neither is helpful, and neither is what Jesus wants us to see today. I put these up just so we know that no matter how we think we're tracking looking sideways, what we are as a church most deep down and desperately at, all, at, at our core is we need Jesus. That's, that's my goal, is that you would look at this list and not say, okay, we're, fail on, we're lukewarm on all five of them, for all four of the core values. No, 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 it's not going to be the case at SWEC. There's a lot of great things at SWEC. But I hope you see that we are more likely to be lukewarm than we often care to admit. That's our goal. That's what Jesus wants to say to us. Because if we can be humble enough to say, we're not there yet, we are not as great as we think we are, we may not even be as bad as we think we are, but really, if we love Jesus and we love His church, we want more, then that's the place I want us to go to because that'll lead to point three. 
Because you want to know what the theme and vision for 2020 is? It's not primarily about that. Our theme for this year is renewal and revival. Renewal and revival. Now, they sound like they're two different things, but they're actually different sides of the same coin. You want to know the difference? Renewal is what God does in His people. Revival is when that renewal begins to overflow out of His people and affects everyone around you. And it becomes bigger. Right? Renewal is what He does in Christians. Revival is when that spills out. And non-Christians become Christians. Whole cities are transformed. See, what we need is not just trickles of God's power to change us slowly. What we need is an outpouring, a flood, revival proportions. Now, you might be uncomfortable with that idea because you'd be thinking, no, 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 I thought growth was supposed to be slow and steady. Yes, it's truth to that, it is. But if you study history and the history of the Christian church over the last over 2,000 years, you would know that the gospel of Jesus, church growth, has not primarily come through slow and steady trickles and rises, so the graph doesn't just look like that. Church history teaches us that it's actually mostly periods of decline followed by sudden accelerations. That's actually the truth of history. Decline followed by revival. Decline followed by acceleration. The decline is often slow, right? Often a slow death. But then God would zap. The Spirit would be poured out. Revival would happen. And then it would be accelerated so steeply that you can't account for it by a standard slow rise. So historically, revival is what was responsible for the birth of the church in Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Revival was responsible for... The Protestant Reformation, which is the reason why we are Protestant, all right? 2017, we actually celebrated 500th year of the Protestant Reformation. You can catch up on some of those sermons if you don't know what it means. Revival responsible was responsible for the UK and the US becoming the center of Christianity from the 17th to the 20th century. For about 400 years, the Christian West dominated by the UK and the US, were centers of Christianity. How? How did that happen? If the gospel started in the Middle East and spread through Europe first, how did it end up in the UK and US? It was because of revival. But revival is also responsible for that situation changing. Do you know where the center of Christianity is now? It's in places like Korea and China and Africa and South America. The 21st century is going to be dominated by churches from Africa and South America and Asia, not the US and UK. But what was responsible for that? Revival. Read about it. It's amazing. And when you read about revival, you also know that it doesn't just transform the church and bring in lots and lots of people to know Jesus. It actually impacts society. I don't have time to tell you about the cases of revival where actually, statistically, crime went down. There was one city where the judges basically had to close their courts because there were no more cases that were coming during a season of revival. Because crime went down that suddenly. When Billy Graham came in 1959 to Australia, they, they looked at statistics. After Graham came, and there was probably the, the most recent, what we call revival in Australia, all right? Crime rates went down. 
There were fewer children born out of wedlock. All those kind of things happen statistically. That's what revival does. I want to show you a quote from Jonathan Edwards, who was a pastor and theologian in the 18th century in America when revival broke out under what's called the First Great Awakening. Look at what he says. This is what they experienced. Our public assemblies were then beautiful. The congregation was alive in God's service. Everyone earnestly intent on the public worship. Every hearer eager to drink in the words of the minister as they came from his mouth. The assembly in general were from time to time in tears. While the word was preached, some weeping with sorrow and distress, others with joy and love, others with pity and concern for the souls of their neighbors. And that kind of thing you read about revivals in Korea and everywhere else, that's what you read about. Now, when you read about that, no matter how well you think our church is going, don't you want that? Because you take a close look at that and you'll see that everything we want in our four core values, worship, community, word, mission, every single thing is transformed, isn't it? How you look for worship, word, community, mission in that one paragraph and you see all of it is there, transformed. And so this year, our prayer and hope is that as a church at SWEC, we would firstly learn more. Because many of you here, I never even knew that revivals were such a big deal in church history. I don't know what that feels like. I've, never, I've been a Christian for decades. I've never experienced renewal. So you learn about it. But more than learning about it, we need to learn about it in order that we might be desperately hungry for it. Desperately hungry for it. And not hungry because you want a greater experience, first and foremost, but because you love Jesus and you want Him and His church to be honored. Because you look at the churches, our church included, especially the churches in the West, and then you look at that and you think, we can't keep going like this. We can't. My personal life can't just be lukewarm anymore. Because Jesus deserves far more. He deserves that, not this. That's your motivation, yeah? And with that in mind, it's no accident that on the 7th of March, for our first single day conference, we're setting the theme renewal or revival. You got to come. All right? You got to come. You got something planned on the day? Cancel it. Come. Because if you want to see God do more in you, and in our church, and as you look at our country, our country's in drought, but there's a greater drought, don't you know? It's a drought that people don't have Jesus. Look at our world, and we start the year so anxiety-ridden. If you want our world to be changed, if you want God to rule the world properly as He wants to, if you are hungry for any of that, you must come. Come and learn about renewal. Come and seek to be renewed. And we especially invited a speaker, Steve Chong's coming. I mean, not just because he's a good speaker and you've heard him at Rice, but because him and he and Naomi and, and, and a lot of the global leaders of Rice have been over the last or nearly two years all around the world been tasting and seeing the beginnings of revival. 
Like, really, I'm not exaggerating. You hear about what's going on in Sao Paulo and Brazil, which some of us, actually, Sharon and Anthony, are going in a couple of weeks' time. Um, just to give you a comparison, uh, um, Mondays they have Rice Chapel in all of these where Rice is at. Rice Chapel in Sydney is great. If you're free on a Monday afternoon, night, go along. But on average, they may get 40, 50 people would be a really good Rice Chapel. The first Rice Chapel in Sao Paulo, Brazil was 200 people. And they've been going regularly with those kind of numbers ever since. Right? This, the scale of what God is doing in a place like Brazil is incredible. I'm only hearing about it. I don't know what's going on. But all I know is I want some of it. And so that's why we want Steve and Naomi to come. Because they can bring some of that. The other thing about revival, it doesn't always just... In fact, most of the time, it doesn't just happen in pockets unrelated to each other. Often, and I know this is a really bad illustration at this particular time, it is a bit like a virus. But a good virus. Revival spreads. It catches. You read about revivals like in Korea. It started with one church in Pyongyang. And boom, 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 boom. All right? That's what... People who've experienced revival in one meeting go and start other meetings and then boom, it happens. I don't know how God is going to bring revival. I pray that He will, but I, I really just want to be around when it happens. And so we want to place ourselves in, under the target. So come along. We're only going to get Steve Chong probably this once. Renewal Day, invite your friends. They can be not followers of Jesus yet. Bring them along anyway. Because if God is going to do a work in us, it's going to spread. So come, be hungry for it. Register today. Next week is the last week of registration. Please come along. All right. More than that, though, because that's just one day. We need to be longing and hungry for it, right? This is the theme for the whole year. We need to be praying for it regularly as individuals in small informal groups four times a week, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. A few of us get together on Zoom and we pray. We've got to be praying more about revival as well. Next Sunday morning, before our first invitation month Sunday, we're going to get together at 10 o'clock and pray. Come along to pray. But pray in your homes. Pray informally with each other. Pray in your CGs. Pray as a church. Pray as a nation. That's where it starts. I'm going to end with this quote. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous preacher in the, uh, the mid-20th century, this is what he said. Uh, and by the way, he was ministering at a church that was large... Because he was such a good preacher, people came from all over to hear him preach. Thousands. It was a mega church at that stage. But he saw a church that was comfortable and self-reliant and very, very, very religious, but not renewed. And this is what he said. He said, are you really concerned about our present position? Are you desperately concerned about it? Are you praying about it? Do you ever pray for the power of God in the church today? Or are you just content to hear about various church activities and say, it's all right, the word is going on. Here is the vital question. Have you seen the desperate need of prayer, the prayer of the whole church? I shall see no hope until individual members of the church are praying for revival, perhaps meeting in one another's homes, meeting in groups among friends, meetings together in churches, meeting anywhere you like and praying with urgency and concentration for a shedding forth of the power of God such as he shed forth 100 and 200 years ago and in every other period of revival and of reawakening. There is no hope until we do. But the moment we do, hope enters. Let's commit ourselves to God. Let's stand and sing. Let's pray. Let's pray first and then we'll stand. Father God, 
Put in our hearts today such an urgent passion by your Spirit, a hunger to see our situation, a desire for the, Jesus, for the glory of Jesus, for revival and renewal. We, we, we're, we don't want to be where we are and stay where we are and be satisfied personally in our own lives as a church just where, where we are. We don't want to be comfortable. We want to be on fire. We want to be renewed. And so we desperately seek that today would just be the beginning. This year would be a theme of renewal and revival beyond even just our renewal day. It would be something we long for. It would be something we pray for. It would be something that we seek. And Father, then you would be pleased to pour out your Spirit in great measure, not just on us. We want it to be on us, but all around us, we pray, so that Jesus might be truly exalted and worshipped as he deserves to be and we might have our greatest joys in Him. Amen. Uh, we're also going to be collecting our offertory. This is only for regular members. So if you're a regular um, and the bags come around, you don't give electronically, you know what to do with them. If you're a newcomer, um, 